in Mark's gospel, no need to turn there. Uh, turn to John 12, if you, if you would. That's where we'll root and ground what we're doing this morning. Uh, but in, in Mark's gospel, in, uh, there's, a, there's a moment as Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem and he passes through Jericho and there's uh, a blind man at the side of the road that uh, begins crying out to Jesus. Uh, his name is Bartimaeus uh, and uh, the crowd tries to shut Bartimaeus up and Jesus shuts the crowd up and it says that Jesus said to Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Have you ever asked Jesus that? <laughs> hey, Jesus, I got something I want you to do for me. Well, in Bartimaeus's case, it was pretty obvious, but Jesus asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. That is, from Jericho to Jerusalem to the Passover feast. What a great testimony Bartimaeus had to share uh, with anybody passing in the crowd. This is what happened between me and Jesus. This morning, I want to ask you, and I want this to just kind of be uh, a marinade for you this morning as we look at God's Word. What do you want Jesus to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? How many of you can already answer that question? We won't ask you to do it for the whole group, but... Are there a few? Okay, thank you, Yvette. There's one. Okay. <laughs> yes, I see that hand. Um, what do you want Jesus to do for you? Uh, today in John chapter 12, we're in a very interesting passage. In John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after Lazarus had been dead and buried for four days. Pretty big deal. Pretty big deal. Bethany, the, the town where this happened, was a stone's throw from Jerusalem, and word traveled fast. And it was at that point that the Pharisees decided, we've got to do away with this Jesus, or we're going to lose our standing. We're no longer going to be the party in power in Israel. And then at the beginning of John chapter 12, Mary, Lazarus' sister, bathes Jesus in this very expensive perfume that caused a bit of a stir. I mean, what is your annual salary? Please, don't have to answer out loud. But imagine spending in one fell swoop your annual salary just to say thank you to someone. And Mary does this for Jesus. And then we get to this passage. And this passage declares that Jesus is king. The crowd declares that Jesus is king. 
later on in John, Jesus and Pilate would have this ongoing discussion about whether or not he was a king. And at the end, when Jesus is crucified, Pilate, in three languages, he hung a sign over Jesus, King of the Jews. Jesus is king. We're also going to see today that often he's a costly king. He's a costly king. We're also going to see he's an unpredictable king. He doesn't always do what I expect or even what I want him to do for me. And finally, we're going to see that he is the king I need. He's the king I need. Now, first of all, Jesus is king. John chapter 12, verse 13. This is a very Jewish thing going on here. In verse 13, they took branches of palm trees. By the way, uh, palm trees um, were part of the coinage for Israel at that time. And interestingly enough, in AD 70, when Rome overthrew a Jewish insurrection, they minted Roman coins for the region of Israel. And those coins on one side had a Roman insignia, on the other side they had the palm trees, the sign of Israel. So this was a big deal. And they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. History lesson, who was in charge of that part of the world when this was written? Rome. Rome. This was a highly charged moment. It was a very highly charged moment. Now, uh, how many of you grew up in churches where on Palm Sunday you would have little kids come in carrying the palm leaves? Yeah. So cute, wasn't it? Aww. Aww. It's like little puppy pictures, right? You probably have some of those little puppy pictures. You're probably in some of those puppy pictures. Okay. This is a totally different animal. The historian from the first century, Josephus, wrote about the Passover festival in Jerusalem. And he estimated that over two and a half million people came to Jerusalem for Passover. Two and a half million people. You thought the parking is bad at Cowboys Stadium? Maybe in Fort Worth I should say TCU. You think the parking is bad there? It was awful. Two and a half million people. Even if Josephus' estimate was off, even if it was inflated, basically there were a humongous amount of people. And the bulk of these people are welcoming Jesus in waving the palm branches, the sign of Israel, proclaiming Him to be the King of Israel. 
They believed he was the fulfillment of a prophecy from Psalm 118. And so they take up the words of that psalm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Like we're going to whip Rome's butt now. We got a God that can raise people from the dead. So it doesn't matter how many people the Romans kill. We just have an endless supply. They are pumped. And they proclaim him the king of Israel. In verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Uh, we're going to get back to this a little later, but that's from a prophecy about Messiah in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. The king of Israel is here, and Jesus is king. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. Good news. Good news. Uncomfortable news sometimes. But good news. Well, if he's the king, what kind of king is he? And this is where the confusion really began. Now, Jesus is a costly king. Look at verse 19 in John 12. The Pharisees who observed this, they begin saying to one another, they begin saying to one another, and it's almost like they're accusing each other, you see that you are gaining nothing. What does that mean? You are gaining nothing. It's another way to say we're losing everything. We're losing everything. As a matter of fact, earlier, earlier in here it says that, um, that they were leaving, the crowd was leaving uh, the Pharisees. It means that they were literally deserting the prominent religious slash political party in their country to follow Jesus. We talk about being losers here. <laughs> um, the Pharisees realized they were gaining nothing. They were losing everything they had given their lives to. Their response was, we're going to kill Jesus. We'll just erase him, get him out of the way. If you drop down to verse 25, in verse 25, Jesus is talking to some Greeks, some Gentiles, who came to see him privately. And he says this, Whoever loves his life will lo loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And you and I are called to be losers. We're called to be losers. Jesus is a costly king. If you haven't begun following him, you need to understand truth in advertising up front. Jesus is going to cost you something. Jesus is going to cost you something. He's probably going to cost you something precious somewhere along the way. 
But Jesus very clearly says, whoever loves his life loses it in order to gain something far greater. Jesus is a costly king. Jesus is also an unpredictable king. In verse 13, the crowd is crying out, Hosanna, which means Lord save, Lord help. Have you ever prayed that kind of prayer? Amen. Yeah, a few of you. Yeah, more than a few of you. Finally got a response. That's good. Lord, save. Lord, help. What were they asking Him to help them with? What were they looking for in terms of salvation? This was a political cry. They were looking for a political Messiah who would deliver them from the yoke of bondage that Rome had laid on them. As a matter of fact, if you fast forward 30 years, there is a four-year war between Israel and Rome. There's an insurrection by the Jews. And that's when the temple gets destroyed. Never to be rebuilt. They wanted freedom from Rome. Rome was pretty rough. They were pretty rough. They wanted freedom from Roman cruelty. Uh, you, you may have heard of Spartacus. If you're a historian, somebody who loves history, you know that was a real character, not just a movie, not just an old movie. Um, there was an ex-gladiator named Spartacus who led a rebellion against Rome. And he and his armies, after some initial success, were defeated by Rome in 71 B.C., about a hundred years before Jesus' triumphal entry. You know what Rome did with the prisoners? They took the prisoners back to what we now know as Italy, and along a 120-mile span of a, a road called the Appian Way, which led from the heel of the boot of Italy to the capital city of Rome, they spread the bodies of slaves on crosses every 60 yards. And those bodies died an excruciating death, naked, and they were left on those crosses to decompose as a sign don't mess with Rome. The same thing happened a few years after this event during the insurrection. All around Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judea, the Romans crucified Jewish rebels the same way in mass to say, don't jack with us. Don't jack with us. The people wanted freedom for that. You would have wanted that too. Roman taxation was very heavy. They wanted freedom from that. Anybody want freedom from heavy taxation? <laughs> Jesus is your guy. <laughs> and Roman administration that just dominated every facet 
of life. These people wanted to be set free. And they were looking for a political freedom. You see, politics is not just the language of our day. It's been the language of much of human history, and it was the language being spoken by the crowd. Oh, Jesus, you're going to be the one who delivers us. As a matter of fact, even after Jesus' death, resurrection, the disciples were still confused about this. In the book of Acts, they came together with Jesus and they asked Him this question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still waiting for a political kingdom. They're still waiting for a political kingdom. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Our salvation is not coming from who's in office. It's just not. It's not coming from a political party. I hope you all figured that out. It's just not. And everybody there thought Jesus was going to be the guy that was going to give them political freedom. Jesus was all alone, even amongst His disciples, in a crowd numbering in the million plus category. Jesus was all alone. He was all alone. The other gospel writers tell us that when He entered into this great crowd and the tumult of it all, that He wept. He wept. Not tears of joy, but tears of sorrow for Jerusalem because they just didn't get it. Walking with Jesus requires me to manage my expectations because He may very well answer affirmatively as He did with blind Bartimaeus. But He may just as well, because He is King, say, no, I'm not going to answer that prayer the way you want it to be answered. Paul the Apostle had some serious heft with the Lord. He had a thorn in the flesh. And he prayed three times that the Lord would deliver him from this thorn in the flesh. And the Lord said, nah, I got this. I got a better plan. Don't you hate when God does that? Don't you hate when God does that? I have to manage my expectation because Jesus is king, which means I'm not. I know that's a, a really radical concept in our individualistic society, which we bring into the church. We just do. It's the air we breathe. But Jesus is king. I'm not king. Amen. I'm... <laughs> That's my wife, for those of you who... Know. Say hi, Brenda. <laughs> Jesus is also not the answer to my agenda, my ambitions. The disciples had ambitions. As a matter of fact, John and James came to Jesus earlier in that passage that I quoted from Mark about blind Bartimaeus. Just a few verses before that, it, it tells us that John and James came to Jesus 
They approached him and they said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. All right then, that's the start of a great spiritual relationship with Jesus. Jesus, we want you to do just whatever we ask you. Jesus being curious, he responds, What do you want me to do for you? And they answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. In your great political power, which we believe you're going to unleash on Rome, we want to be at your right hand and your left. We want to be your boys. That was the disciples. And it wasn't just the disciples. There were three disciples that were the inner circle within the twelve. And their names were Peter, James, and John. These were really Jesus' guys. And they didn't get it. What's the possibility that I might not get it? Pretty strong. You remember when Jesus taught us to pray? The beginning of His ministry? You remember what He said? To pray? Your will be done. Your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can you pray that? Can you pray that? I want deliverance. I mean, our house is awesome. I love the setting. But some of you are old enough to remember that movie Money Pit. Uh, We're having to fix so many things on our house. Like, Jesus, here's what I want you to do for me. I want you to fix this mess. And I want it to cost me nothing. He has not yet answered that prayer. So pray for me. Jesus is unpredictable. As C.S. Lewis wrote, Aslan is not a tame lion. Jesus is not on a leash. He's not in a cage. And he doesn't owe me anything because he's given me everything. Jesus is the king I really need. Now stick with me. We're going to fly. Verse 15 says he's sitting on a donkey's colt. Okay, conquering warriors rode in on a horse or a chariot. Now there's a horse, and there's a donkey. And then there's a donkey's adolescent child. (laughs) Jesus is communicating. All four Gospels tell us this. As a matter of fact, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us uh, of how Jesus went about getting this adolescent donkey. And Jesus is saying something about what kind of a king he is. He's not conquering in the political sense. He's a whole different sort of king. Sitting on a donkey's colt. That comes from Zechariah 9. Well, the people there would have bought into part of Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That's what they're doing. Behold, your king is coming to you. Now they would have liked to have put a period right there, honestly. But the rest of Zechariah's prophecy says, Righteous and having salvation is he, humble, humble and mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. The Messiah is not coming in to cut off Rome. He's coming to bring peace. It's not a warlike peace. He's going to get rid of the war chariots and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. Listen, they were not anticipating on that day peace to the nations. They wanted war with Rome. You ever want revenge? That's what they wanted. And yet, Messiah will speak peace to the nations, including Rome. And His rule shall be, not in Judea, not in Judea alone, but from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then in verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Okay, this, is, this passage is quoted here. Um, is a conflation of two prophecies, one from Zechariah, the other one, the other one, which is not often referred to here, is from Zephaniah. It's in the prophecy of Zephaniah as he's rolling to his conclusion, which I'm trying to do, <laughs> that we read these words, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Well, they got the first part of that prophecy right as Jesus was entering. And then it says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Not against Rome, against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, not arm up, O Zion, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak, the Lord your God is in your midst. And Jesus, the Word of God incarnate in the flesh, was in their midst. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, look at verse... Look at verse 15 from Zephaniah 3. It begins, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. You know how John's Gospel begins in chapter 1 when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming along and he says this, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was here to save from sin, not to save from Rome. He was here to save me from sin. Not from the money pit, but from sin and judgment. He had a much bigger job to do. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Now it's interesting, on the day of Jesus' entry, it was also the day that people gathered their lambs for slaughter later in the week in Passover. Now think about this. Two and a half million people 
Can you imagine how many lambs had to be slaughtered? The stench of slaughtered lambs was soon going to fill the city that was bloated with Passover crowds. Two million people were joyfully expecting a triumphant political king, not a servant king. They anticipated a coronation, not a crucifixion. Remember I said earlier, Jesus was exceptionally alone. He was the only one who got it. All by himself in a crowd of two million. hearing the cries of the lambs who would soon be slaughtered. That's why he says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. This is such a great passage in Zephaniah. Such, it's, it's why you have to keep reading in it. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Jesus was the king of forgiveness, the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. It's repeated again. The Lord is in your midst. He's with you. Jesus is with you. You shall never again fear evil. Just an echo of Psalm 23. I will fear no evil. Fear not, O Zion. What are you afraid of? Jesus wants to handle that. He's a mighty one who will save. And I love verse 17 of Zephaniah. He will rejoice over you with gladness. You scared of Jesus? Are you scared of Jesus? A lot of people grew up in church environments where the whole idea of God was a pretty scary thing. I think I've mentioned before that, you know, in my church, you knew not to sit on the first three rows. You might get spit on. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. There would be a different kind of shouting and singing. And Jesus was going to bring it. Much different than the shouting and the singing as He was led to the cross. He will quiet you by His love. Oh. You see, those prophets that are mentioned in John 12 tell us exactly what king, what kind of king the Messiah Jesus is. Are you searching for a safe place where you're not just welcomed but wanted? Jesus is a humble, approachable king. Has life dealt you a hand that has your soul in restless turmoil and daily anxiety? Jesus is a King of peace. Are you bearing burdens of guilt, of shame, of failure, which leave you feeling worthless and useless? Jesus is a redeeming, sacrificial King. Do you feel alone in a crowded room? Maybe right now. Unseen, unheard, all alone. Jesus is a present King, a personal King. 
Are you facing assaults to your dignity and security, maybe even your reputation? Jesus is a protective king. Do you feel powerless in your circumstances, unable to change the trajectory of your life? Jesus is a powerful king. Are you struggling with which way to turn, lost with no direction home? Jesus is a saving king. Are your days overcast with feelings of sadness and depression? Is there no song in your soul? Jesus is a joyful, glad, yes, a musical king. Is your soul restless and rattled? Do your hands tremble? Are your thoughts anxious? Jesus is a kind, gentle, restful king. And there's only one question I can ask after that. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? Is He king of your situation? Is He king of your aspirations, your hopes and your dreams? Is He your past and future king but not your present king? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Odds are He's already done it or is in the process of doing it and abundantly more. Friends, friends, turn your hearts towards home. Lift your heads towards heaven. Bow your knee today to sweet, strong, sacrificial, saving King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, uh, you, <laughs> you can't be compressed into a few short minutes on a Sunday morning. We have scratched infinity. We have only touched on your goodness. But Lord, I pray this morning that you would use the words of John, of Zechariah, of Zephaniah to create in us a longing to be the sheep of your pasture, safe in the arms of Jesus, quieted by your love, the object of your singing and your gladness and your joy. We know a little bit about how much we cost you. And we can only humbly give thanks, the unworthy, to the one who is worthy, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And God's people, believing this, said, Amen.